opportunity for us just to come and see how in the Old Testament, in the law, in the word of God from the very beginning, the Lord demonstrates his character. The Lord demonstrates his saving grace. The Lord demonstrates to us the truths that we come now to celebrate in Christ. They haven't changed because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who we know now maybe by a different name because we know Jesus of Nazareth by that name today, is a God who has not changed in his character and in his works. The book of Exodus will unfold for us what is seen to be the crowning work of redemption and deliverance in all of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament, the prophets always point back to that deliverance, to that salvation, and it is eminently a work of grace. I hope that as we spend some time traveling through Exodus week by week, the Lord might show us new insights and show us afresh the ways in which he is good in redeeming a broken people, in rescuing uh, a people in bondage, in delivering them from the slavery to their sin. Well, may it be. I also uh, want to tell you this morning, uh, I bring you greetings uh, from some of our brothers uh, in Kenya and uh, from Scotland and from Iran and then some other places in America which are not quite as exciting. Uh, Noah and I were blessed with the opportunity this week to attend uh, a conference and uh, stand and sing with about 11,000 people. Um, I would guess about 9,000 of which were men. Um, and man, I don't know, I'm sure it's just a man thing, but as a man, when you hear men sing, uh, your chest resonates uh, with the, the deep uh, bass of that sound, and you can't help but sing together with them. Men, be encouraged. Men, encourage those around you and sing. We can't do that enough. Men who sing are men who change the world. Praise God. All right, well, let's continue in our worship and go to the Lord. Pray with me. Our great God, we ask, would you lead us now? Would you continue to lead us and continue to speak to us as we have rehearsed your words and your truths, and we look forward to that day when we will be fully and wholly satisfied in you soon and very soon, yet um, even now in preparation for that day, come and satisfy us in your, in your presence. Feed us on your word. Convict us by your power and draw us with your great love and your grace. To that end, Lord, we give you this time. We ask it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Michael Morales says this, in being driven out of the Garden of Eden, humanity did not merely lose life defined as an existence in paradise. Rather, people lost the fountain of life and the source of all peace and joy and fulfillment. That is, they lost their relationship with God himself. What's more, exiled from God, they lost something of their own selves as well. Created for life with God to find their highest satisfaction and rest in him Banished humanity lost its defining purpose and its basis for significance. He says that we, as humans born in the image of Adam, lost our highest satisfaction when we lost Eden. We lost our rest. We lost our defining purpose and the basis for our significance. So, apart from Christ, people today are, are regularly seeking that connection with the eternal, whether they, whether they admit it or not, whether they understand it as such as not, they are regularly seeking. We are 
meaning seekers, among other things. And even the most critical of us do it in full. We look for meaning all the time. Even the most secular of us look for meaning all the time. We can't help not looking for meaning. In fact, even those who say there is no meaning to the universe will then go on to explain to you their meaning of all of their so-called meaningless universe. We can't get away from it. From the skater bum to the CEO to the homeless woman, all seek it. So where does that leave us? outside of Eden. Where does that leave us? In most cases, it leaves us striving, striving to to make a name for ourselves in the midst of this cosmic soup. Do we know anyone like this today? Do we know anyone who we might look at them and see, yeah, I think that looks like somebody who's probably trying to make a name for themselves. Well, at the risk of wrongly judging hearts, which I can't see. There are some whom we would be right to wonder about, right? Like Vladimir Putin. Think that dude's maybe trying to make a name for himself? How about Elon Musk? Think that dude maybe wants to have his name hang around for a while after he's gone? We could continue. You can, you can think through the headlines and you can come up with some others. The point, though, is this. Even if you conquer nations or buy Twitter or fly into space or change your identity or get that promotion, it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough to fulfill that longing for eternal connection. It'll never be enough for the God-given investment in your soul that is meant to be satiated, satisfied only in him. We all seek to find such Meaning, we all at some level seek to make a name for ourselves. As we launch into the book of Ad- Exodus this morning, we begin in a passage that's, that's all about the making of a name. So let's read the opening two-thirds of our passage to begin with. We'll start in Exodus 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the person who came, persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, The people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which, with which they rigorously imposed on them. Pause there. Notice first in our passage, the people of the name abide under a rich blessing. The people of the name abide under a rich blessing we find in the opening 
of this section. We are told that uh, the events of the book of Exodus take probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about two years, and the majority of that time focusing on roughly a, a, a year or so of that. It's highly selective material taken from within the centuries of the history of Israel. Why? Because it's not just there to be history. It's meant to be his story. It's meant to be the evidence of God's work in time and space on this earth. And to start with, the book begins with those who are in covenant with the Lord, the people of the name. Those in covenant with the Lord today are those who are in covenant because of Christ. They've come to believe in the Messiah that he's promised to send, and through the new covenant promise that is available only through him, they have been made new. By faith, their eyes have been opened, and the Spirit lives in them. That's the covenant people of today, but I'm using this, the people of the name, as I think that's how they're described and emphasized here in this passage, to speak of those covenant people from some millennia ago. They've already been given a name, and they are being renewed, we'll find, in his blessing with them. This is what the open, opening seven verses of the book of Exodus are doing. It's just continuing the story. In fact, the book of Exodus starts with the word and. You don't typically start with and. You're supposed to start like a great epic with once upon a time, right? And then once upon a time. No, it's just once upon a time. Why? Because these books flow together. We're meant to understand all of the context of Genesis, and we'll see a good bit of it this morning. We're meant to be connected with this ongoing story. The passage then shows us the people of the name, and it shows us what they're connected to. Let me give you about four or five Things. The passage shows us the people of the name connected to the purpose of God. That's part of the rich blessing that they abide under right now. The people of the name connected to the purpose of God. Look at verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. There are five verbs in that one verse. Guess what? You will find all five of those verbs in Genesis 1 verses 27 and 28. What's the message as the book of Exodus continues the story from Genesis? It's simply to say, here are a people who reside under the blessing of God and under his purpose as they are fruitful and multiplying and filling the land. These who were made in his image, created to show forth his name and his glory, are a people experiencing that in some sense already, experiencing that blessing. Second, the people of the name are connected to the promise of God, not only the purpose of God, but the promise of God. Because again, here in verse 7, it uses language like land and blessing and greatness. And where else will we find those in the book of Genesis? Oh, I don't know, maybe the promise to Abraham in chapter 12, where all of those words are used. Here are people experiencing the promise of God, filling this land, though it's not even the promised land. It's in Egypt. They are strangers and exiles in this place, and yet the, the covenant promise of God has gone with them. God can't help but keep his promise and bless them. God is always keeping his promises to his people. Yes, in your generation, in your life, in your day, at this moment, you might not see every evidence of it. You might not see that he is doing everything. You might not be able to check all of the boxes. Israel's about to enter into that dark season. 
But, but the, the story, as it picks up in Exodus, lets us know without any question the blessing of God is upon them. That's the first thing we hear. At the end of verse 7, the people are not in slavery yet at all. Not yet. In fact, in fact, guess why the people will be enslaved? Well, you know, because we just read it. Because of the jealousy wrought by the blessing of God, in fact. It will be God's goodness toward them that will lead them to the very bitterness that they will experience. Brother, sister, you who know Christ, God is always keeping his promises, always and in every generation. And Israel here is experiencing that. Third passage shows us the people of the name called by his name. Notice how important name is in these opening four, uh, opening seven verses. First, the, the, the word name comes very quickly in the first few words. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. And then we get a list of all of those names. And you might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. It just needs to tell the story and it needs to do that. But the idea of names are very prominent. In fact, even the term sons of Israel, so interesting because Almost without exception, maybe a couple of exceptions in Genesis, where the phrase sons of Israel, you know who those referred to? They refer to the direct first generation sons of a dude whose name was Jacob and now it's Israel. We get to Exodus chapter 1 and guess what? It's not that anymore. It's at least 70 people. Oh yeah, but that's a few centuries back. It's going to be tens and hundreds of thousands and millions who are now called the sons of Israel. They're given a title. They're given this name. And where did that name come from? Even the name Israel was a name that was given by God, right? He was called Jacob, but then he got renamed. Lots going on with the naming here. Notice also the people of the name are connected to the time and place of God. They're connected to the time and place of God. His purpose, his promise, connected to his name, and now connected to his time and place Notice where all these who are of the names of the sons of Israel, where they are in verse 1. It says they came to Egypt with Jacob. We know that at the end of Genesis. It tells the story of how they got down there. In Exodus, Moses is quickly just telling us, yeah, that's how that happened. But this is where we're going to pick up. So let me connect some dots for you. They ended up down there in Egypt. Now, in light of the very next verse and verses and chapters you might be prone to think well what's wrong clearly Israel took a wrong turn at some point maybe they should have made that left at Albuquerque you get full points if you know what that means um, maybe they shouldn't be here at all no they are in the very time and the very place that God has ordained let me read to you from Genesis 46 you can just you can just jot down Genesis uh, 46, verses 1 through 4. I'll just read the last couple, uh, verses 3 and 4. God said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. The promise, the will, the command of God is for Jacob to take his household and for Israel to go and reside in Egypt. Yes, they have a promised land, but they have a detour, and all of it is according to the divine will, we know. 
But finally, we still are led to ask, isn't this not the will of God that they be in this place and that they incite the jealousy and the envy of the Egyptians, that they bring the wrath of Pharaoh down upon themselves in such a harsh and bitter slavery? Isn't this not God's will that his people would suffer such? Well, this may not be what theologians use the title of it as the preferential will of God, but this is most assuredly, assuredly the decorative will of God. This is God's will of decree. He has planned for them to be in this place and undergo this suffering. Proof, Genesis 15, 13, if you just want to jot that down. Genesis 15, 13. Remember when uh, Abraham takes some animals and he cuts them in half and uh, God comes down and appears in like a, a burning oven and smoking torch and stuff and there, there makes a covenant with Abraham? Well, here are some of the words. Genesis 15, 13, that God told Abraham. God had said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Abram was told centuries before that this is exactly what God had in mind. Not only that they would be there and that it might be rough, but they would be there and they would be oppressed and enslaved. This, by the way, is a warning given ahead of time to the nation, to those Israelites who knew their Bibles. I wonder what you and I would think if, I don't know, we were born in Goshen, in Egypt, and we just happened to be hearing the stories of where we came from and who we were, and along the way we were told about the promise to Abram. Hmm, we are in a strange land. Hmm, I wonder what happens while we're here for a while. Hmm. No wonder to them about that. This is, in fact, a reminder that the will of God is being done even in their hardship. In fact, even through and because of their hardship. It's not an easy lesson for us to wrap our arms around. Yes, we read the Psalms, and rightly we complain back to God, Lord, you are righteous. Why this? Lord, you are faithful. Where are you? Whatever our complaints, whatever our concerns, whatever our crying out to God, and yet he is working as well. In a hard season, we may often wonder if we have been forgotten, but we're not because God never forgets. Return to him, however hard it may be. Whether or not you have a verse or you can prove or you can fully understand what he's doing and exactly what's going on, just return and run back to him and there abide. Do you know Christ? If you do, then you're, you are part, brother and sister of the people of the name. And you abide under a rich blessing, which will prove itself all in God's good time. If you don't know Christ this morning, then friend, we want to tell you this is how you become one of the people of the name. You admit your need for him. You turn from sin and you turn to him. You ask for forgiveness. You ask for new life, which he's promised to give. You ask for his spirit, which he's promised to give. You ask for help to now walk with him and to be made new, which he has promised to give. Because this is the people of the name abiding under a rich blessing, no matter what generation 
or what country on the face of the earth they may find themselves. If you do know Christ, or when you do come to know Christ, then know that you now have a name. You have been given a name, a new name, by the one who is a name changer and a name giver. Revelation, it says of those who overcome, that he will give them a stone, and written on it is a name which no one knows but they themselves. The sons of Israel had a name, and they had a place, and they had a privilege. They had a promise, and they had a purpose among the nations, and so do you. So do you, if you know Christ. And Yahweh is making his name known through you, as he does in every generation. Next. Next, notice with me, a mighty people that do not know him bring bitter enslavement. A mighty people, these Egyptians, that do not know Yahweh, they bring a bitter enslavement. Now, I'll just, I'll just say once as, a, a, as a, a caveat, surely amongst Egypt there are still maybe some who know the stories of their Genesis and know of the one true God who live within that nation and reside within those geographical boundaries. Surely because of the Exodus, there are many, many, many more in Egypt who will come to know the one true God, and that is his purpose. But by and large, it is a right statement to say that a mighty people that do not know him bring bitter enslavement. Verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Notice here we are told one thing, really, about this king. We'll find later he's called Pharaoh, but for now he's just called king of Egypt. One thing we know about him, and you know what that is? That he's ignorant. He's ignorant of one particular thing. He's ignorant of Joseph. Why is that important? Well, if we had just read the book of Genesis, we know how incredibly important Joseph was and how magnificently God has divinely worked through him and demonstrated his power and his knowledge of all things. And the previous Pharaoh saw it, learned it, got it, responded to it, blessed Joseph. But now, but now there's a new sheriff in town and he doesn't know Joseph or his God and he doesn't care. Knowing and knowing God, these words, these phrases will, will become huge in this book. And the word is first introduced here in what is a very critical lack of knowing, a very critical ignorance on the part of Pharaoh, which will lead to all of the bitter enslavements of the people. Just some quick Looking ahead and wetting of the appetite of this theme of no in chapter 2, we're going to be told that God knows his people, and that will be such a reassurance to them. In chapter 5, Pharaoh will tell us that he doesn't know this God, which is exactly what we're told in chapter 1, but Pharaoh will, will say it with his own lips. In chapter 6, God will make himself known to Israel. But I thought Israel already knew God, yes and no, because the word to know is a rich, deep word with multiple layers of meaning. And even the nation of Israel who are called by his name do not really know their God. Not yet. Not as they ought. Chapter 7, it says that Egypt shall know 
and they shall know that Yahweh is God. And you know what, in chapter 7, we're not even to the plagues yet, right? We could go on, but you get the points. I just want to kind of cast your eyes forward with this idea of knowing and help you understand why it leaps off the page to say that this new king didn't know Joseph. What's more, what else do we notice about Pharaoh here? One, he's ignorant, just ignorant of the most important thing. I'm sure he's a pretty smart smart dude, but he's ignorant of the most important thing. But what else do we notice about him? I already mentioned it. We don't know which Pharaoh he is. We're We're not told what his name is. Oh, yeah, by the way, and then, you know, back in history at one point, There was a guy, and he was the leader of the United States, and he made an earth-shaking decision, and he was a president. And that's all you need to know. Which one? When when can we find out some more about it? That's really not important. Who cares who he is? Is the sense of the author of Exodus at this point. Apparently, it's not really worth knowing Pharaoh's name because in the grand scheme of things, uh, his name is... Not really a name that's made a name for itself, is it? Because of his ignorance, in fact. The second lesson, then, that we're going to find in making a name is this. There is no name worth making. There is no name worth making if it does not make much of God's name. Friends, there is no name worth making. No matter what you own or where you go or who you call yourself or who you're in charge of or anything else, There's no name worth making if it doesn't make much of God's name. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and as far as scripture is concerned, he's a nobody. Wonderful, long pages, chapters, books written about who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Wonderfully important for the sake of establishing the history and historicity of the Bible, and it's a good study. But as far as the message of Exodus chapter 1, we don't even care. Because the author of the Exodus didn't care to make it known to us. He's a nobody. What will your life amount to? What will my life amount to? There is no name worth making if it doesn't make much of God's name. Now then, let's look at some of these ramifications of Pharaoh's ignorance, of his not knowing, that we'll find in this section. What does all of this not knowing mean? First thing it means, Pharaoh's not knowing, his ignorance of Joseph, his ignorance of Yahweh. First thing it means is great fear. Great fear. Verse 12, it's right there. But the more they afflicted them, speaking of all of the Egyptians, the more they afflicted the Israelites, the more they, the Israelites, multiplied. And the more they spread out. By the way, the word spread out is a wonderful little Hebrew phrase. Um, It it, it literally means break forth. Um, It almost could have the idea of birth. Um, It it has the idea of being unrestrained. Anyway, the more they spread out so that they, the Egyptians, were in dread of the sons of Israel. So Pharaoh's going to make a plan to make the lives miserable of the Israelites, and the more they beat on them, the more they just break forth. And pretty quickly, the rest of the Egyptians kind of scratch their head, and they go, this is scary, right? You ever had uh, one or two uh, uh, ants bite you, and then you get mad, and you go after the hill? Guess what's coming? 
The more you beat on it, the more they swarm. That's sort of the sense here, except it's entirely inexplicable. There's, there's no human explanation for it. And so looking at it, the Egyptians are just scared to death. This is not working. It's not working. No matter how much we beat on them. Second thing that this not knowing means, it means a fight against God. That's what the Egyptians unwittingly are doing. Look at verse 10. What is the reason that Pharaoh gives for his bitter slavery that he will bring? Verse 10, he tells us, come, let us deal wisely with them, which, by the way, is ironic because this ain't smart. Let us deal wisely with them, and here's the reason, or else they will multiply. What did we just learn from Genesis 1 and from Genesis 12 and from Exodus 1, 7? God has ordained to bless these people. Pharaoh has ordained to fight against the very command of God. Oh, he may not know the command by name. He may not be able to quote Genesis. He may or may not have heard the stories, but it doesn't change the fact. He's doing the work of the devil, fighting against the purpose of God at this point. Multiplying the people is exactly God's will. So this not knowing leaves Pharaoh in a place of fighting against God. And then, ironically, at the same time, this not knowing also means that Pharaoh will unwittingly end up doing the will of God. He'll actually end up doing the very will of God. He'll just do the will of God as one of God's enemies. Remember these words again? Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. How do they get enslaved and oppressed? Pharaoh thinks, I've got to do something, so I'm going to stop this. And so he goes and he enslaves and oppresses, which is exactly what God said would happen. How do you think Pharaoh would feel if he realized everything I'm doing is exactly the will of Yahweh, this God whom I don't know and don't believe in? He is making me do exactly what his perfect will is. Want proof of this? Look at verse 11. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. The word afflict is my translation in the NAS. It appears again in verse 12, the more they afflicted them. Guess what Hebrew word that is? It's the Hebrew word oppress, which is the exact same word in Genesis 15, 13. Now jump down to verses 13 and 14. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors with which they rigorously imposed on them. Five times the word for labor is used, and guess what that word is also? It's the word for enslaved. It's the exact same Hebrew word that's found in Genesis 15, 13. So seven times the language of Genesis 15, 13 is here. What's the point? Pharaoh can do whatever he wants, wants, but he can't escape the sovereign will of God. By the way, the water you hear in the distance is not to prepare us for the crossing of the Red Sea. That is for a baptism by God's grace, which we are planning for second service. We're very excited about. Hang around for the first few minutes of second service if you'd like to be a part of that. What else does this not knowing mean? It makes you someone who fights against God. Unwittingly, it makes you someone who does the will of God. It brings great fear forth. Fourth, what Pharaoh is doing here because of his not knowing is he's seeking to make a name apart from God. 
Pharaoh is seeking to make a name for himself apart from God. I think that's pretty clear because of his attitude in chapter 5 when he says, I don't know this God. It's pretty clear in many other cases, but it's even found here in the opening chapter because there are echoes of a very well-known event from the book of Genesis. Look at verse 10. Come, let us. Those are the same words that lead off the story of the Tower of Babel. Brick and mortar, some other words not used very often in Scripture, but you'll find them back in Genesis 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. Some other connections there that just sort of hint, this is just good writing. This is an author giving us a wafting, a smell in the room of, smells like Babel, smells like a group of people who want to build a tower up to heaven and make a name for themselves. That's what it smells like from Pharaoh. And notice, by the way, that Pharaoh just won't let them go. What does Pharaoh need to do to solve the problem? You guys know the story. You know how deep and bad it's going to get. There's other pieces of this puzzle, but what you need to understand, whether from the very beginning or at any stage along the way, he can stop all of the misery of his people if he will simply do what? Let them go. They don't ask to be put in positions of power. They don't ask to own a portion of Egypt. They just want to go home. And what does he say in the very beginning, in verse 10? Otherwise, they will join themselves to those who hate us, middle of verse 10, and fight against us, and here it is, and depart from the land. That's one of the things that, that Pharaoh refuses. Why? Because Pharaoh doesn't want peace. He doesn't want the welfare of his people. What he wants is slave labor. What he wants is to hold the people in subjugation. What he wants is to make a name for himself by having a couple million free slaves around to do whatever he wants so he can, oh, I don't know, build Pithom and build Ramses and, you know, just build some of the seven wonders of the world, right? That's all Pharaoh wants. And friends, this is exactly what happens if we're ignorant. This is the natural course of the human heart if we don't know God first. We will strive to make a name for ourselves. I don't know that the desire is of itself wrong. In fact, I'm quite convinced it's God-given. God has placed eternity in their hearts, Ecclesiastes says, right? We long for such things. The problem is we go about it apart from God and we make ourselves his enemies. What Pharaoh wants is not peace. He wants subjugation. And so here's the last part about all this not knowing. Once you leave God, all name-seeking leads you down the path of destruction. Once you leave the path of God, once you leave him as the focus of all that I do, Lord, please let it be done for your glory, not mine. Once we leave that path, all name-making is a path that ends in destruction. Look with me again, verses 13 to 14. I want to go back there, and I mentioned the word enslavement. I'm going to use the word serve uh, or service everywhere that in the Hebrew it has that Hebrew word. Okay, ready? You'll count them. I think there's five. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to serve rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and bricks and all kinds of service in the field, all their serving which they rigorously made them serve. Now, Five times. That word's just jumping off the page in the Hebrew if we're reading it in the original. 
What has Pharaoh done? He's clearly made slaves of the Israelites. What's, what's going on in the book of Exodus? God will say, let my people go. That you know. But do you know the rest of the sentence? Let my people go so they may worship me. Or the Hebrew word, serve. There are two options on the face of the earth. You can either serve a ruthless taskmaster. You can serve your sin. You can seek to make a name for yourself. Or you can serve the one true God. You can serve a glorious master. You can worship him. Only two choices on the face of the earth. The first one comes in millions of different flavors. But it all boils down to one choice. Notice all of this not knowing of God will lead Pharaoh and his people down a path of bitter enslavement, of utter wickedness. We will either serve Yahweh in his great name or destructively we will serve ruthlessly, serving other masters and being thorns in the side of others. A mighty people that do not know him bring bitter enslavement. Consider the struggles that we bring upon ourselves and upon our relationships when we don't put the Lord first. Third, I want you to notice the will of God. The will of God persists to preserve his own. God's will is persistent. It is a persistent will. He is always working his will. And what his will is working to persist in at this point is to preserve his own. I want you to notice Yahweh's doggedness. Verse 12. But the more the Egyptians afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they broke forth so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. One, one commentator said it so well. Is it that the author of Exodus is just terribly interested in the birth rates of minorities? What, why these people in this foreign land and the mention of all of their children because it's a statement of the persistent will of God to bless. Man, they're everywhere. Let's do something. Let's make them miserable. And the more they made them miserable, the more the will of God persists to preserve them. Pharaoh cannot thwart the plans of God. And if he can't do it, tell me who can. Yahweh's will is not named. In verse 12, nowhere do we see anything about God, but it is screaming at us off the page. Given all of the promises in Genesis and all of the work of God, it is clearly seen that his will persists. Now, this is going to carry us into the last section, so let's pick up again in our reading, and then we'll return to our third main point. 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua, and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son... And you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Pause there. I want you to notice how the will of God continues to persist in preserving his own. Next, notice the protection for the midwives. That's a persistence of God's will. Look at verse 20 here. 
It says, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied. Understand God was good to the midwives is not explained by and the people multiplied. Understand that those are two separate things. God was good to the midwives and he was good in multiplying the people so that they were very mighty. And then it's going to return to the midwives. But understand in verse 20, God being good to the midwives is a thing of its own. What might we imagine are some of the good things from God, his persisting will, on behalf of the midwives? Oh, I don't know. Verse 20 doesn't say that Pharaoh killed them. This is an incredibly risky thing to do. You don't go to the king of Egypt and go, yeah, you know, that thing you asked us to do, it's kind of not working. I, you just don't say that to Pharaoh. He goes off with their heads. Why doesn't he? Because God was good to them. They are immortal until God is done with them, right? That's how it is if we walk in the will of the Lord. This was such an incredibly risky thing to do. And yet, in the providence of God, Pharaoh is entirely helpless. Notice his persistent will preserving his own next in the contradiction of Pharaoh's plans, not only in protecting the midwives, but in the contradiction of Pharaoh's plans. So the rest of verse 20, and the people multiplied and became very mighty, which, oh golly, here's the third time in the passage that God does the exact opposite of what Pharaoh wants, right? The exact opposite. There is an ocean of encouragement in those last two little phrases for us of verse 20, aren't there? Oh, Lord God, you will do your will, and I just want to be a part of doing your will. And you are unstoppable if I walk in your protection. This is, by the way, in the wording, another reference to the creation mandate that was given back in Genesis 1. God will work out his purpose for all creation in his time and in his ways. It's another layer of the sovereign will of God in action. What we really have here, and we don't even begin to have time to trace this, but what we have is Pharaoh has now become homicidal. And what we really have beginning in, in Exodus 1 is the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. That began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He has become murderous. In fact, we won't quite get to verse 22. I think appropriately it belongs with the next section, so I will leave that. But Pharaoh's going to become even more desperate. And that's where the next scene will really pick up. What we have at this point is the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil, raging against the people of the name, seeking to destroy them. But they can't because God's will persists to preserve his own. And so we pray for brothers and sisters around the world today brothers and sisters in Ukraine, and yes, brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia, brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia, in China, in the 1040 window, all over the world today, languishing and struggling, and yet the seed of the serpent will not overcome them, for the Lord himself keeps them. 
And brother and sister in Christ, you are part of that battle this morning. Take heart because Proverbs 18 says, the name of the Lord is what? Strong tower. And the righteous run into it and they are saved. Finally, I want you to notice that the midwives are personally rewarded. The will of God persists to preserve his own, but not just preserving, rewarding in verse 21. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Why households? What a strange reward. It comes a little bit out of the blue. Ultimately, I don't entirely know. The passage doesn't entirely tell us. But from what the passage does tell us, I think the best understanding is that probably that particular reward was so fitting because it perfectly matched their disobedience to Pharaoh. I will not destroy families. God says, I will give you families. And it was, once again, the perfect overthrow of all of Pharaoh's plans. I don't know if that means that these two were younger and did not yet have children. I just don't know. We can only guess at those things, and we don't probably need to know the details. What we do know clearly is the blessing. The will of God, then, is persisting even on behalf of these midwives, not only to preserve them, but even to reward them. Well, let's finish, then, this morning with a final word on making a name. With two unlikely women, Yahweh makes a name. With two unlikely women, Yahweh makes a name. Why only two midwives? One of the best guesses that I like is because it's possible that these are the heads of guilds in the area because there's um, a lot of babies, so probably only two midwives in the country ain't going to handle it. All we know for sure is it's probably just two ladies who really loved babies and were especially gifted by God at coaching women. And so this is how they have chosen to serve with their God-given gifts in such a, a glorious job to usher life into the world. What a beautiful, beautiful task. But in their character, they are so much more than just their task or their position. Not necessarily a high calling, certainly probably not as much in Egypt, maybe more honored in Israel, I would expect, but not so much, I would think, in Egypt, especially being midwives to these slaves. But look at their character. Verse 17, right, you already know it. The midwives feared God. Verse 21, but because the midwives feared God. What is their character? These are women of very strong conviction. Probably they know well Genesis 9, 6, where God has said, whoever sheds man blood, Man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. They know that. They're like, I will not take a life. That is to dishonor and fight against my God. Strong conviction. And then bold and sacrificial action. Did you see what their action was? I know you know what it is, and you can explain it in your words. I can explain it in my words. But in spending time in the passage this week, my words aren't nearly as good as God's words. You want to hear God's words on what they did? You want to hear their bold action? Here it is twice. First, at the end of verse 17. They did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but they let the boys live. Verse 18, why have you done this thing and you've let 
the boys live. I want to just stand up with these two ladies and go, yes, let the boys live. I think there's a whole sermon there, right, on how we can fight today for the sake of young men in a world that has forgotten that it is good to be a man. That is not a misogynistic statement. It's good to be made a boy and a man. That's a whole other sermon, and it's not from Exodus 1, sorry. But let the boys live. There's a peculiar reason why the sons are singled out. Because God will call Israel my firstborn son. And he will command Pharaoh, let, let my son go that he may worship me. Lots of other connections. I love it, though. <laughs> I love these two godly women who knew Yahweh, who loved Yahweh, who believed Yahweh even at the cost of their own lives, if necessary, who feared Yahweh, and they would not do what the king commanded. First example, as far as I know, of civil disobedience in Scripture. Is there one in Genesis? Maybe. You have to think about it. If not the first, certainly one of the most striking. Question. I need to spend at least 90 seconds on this. Did they lie? Probably, but not certainly, but probably. But who cares? Because they clearly did it in faith, to which you say, good, I can go lie as long as I do it, as long as I do it in faith. Well, that's going to be tough to figure out the exact right circumstances to do that in. And even if they did lie, consider this, it is such a mocking lie that it is meant, I think, by Yahweh to incite the defensiveness of Pharaoh. Look at verse 19 again. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are just not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Number one, slightly not entirely believable, but maybe. It could be this race of people just labors long and this race of, this race of people labors very quickly. It's possible, but you would think Pharaoh and his servants would be scratching their heads a little bit and go, really? But then, if that's not enough offense... I mean, do not the two ladies call them out. You know, they're not like your women. Huh. They're strong, they're vigorous, they're lively. You can fit in your own bad names for Egyptian women that she's calling them to Pharaoh's face. I don't know. This is just one more reason why I think it's unlikely for these women to be so blessed. Just a couple of faithful Israelites who know their God and fear no one but him and are faithful to Yahweh. But then they go out and they lie. And you're like, How? this is just not a great model to put up for us. Oh, yes, they are. Because Yahweh makes a name for himself. And he makes a name for them by giving them descendants and a progeny. And he will make a name for himself through them. All three of those things are tied together. In fact, in fact, we've, we've really at this point almost forgotten something that I think is maybe the most important thing in the passage. Certainly the most important with regard to this, these two ladies. You want to notice with me again something I haven't talked about yet. Something strange about all of this. You notice what it is? It's that their name in this passage that is so much about names and knowing and not knowing names and all of those things. 
king of Egypt, 15, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named. The word name is there again in Hebrew. And then we get her name, Shifra, and the other who was named Pua. Compare this to Pharaoh who doesn't even get named, right? Who do you think Yahweh thinks is important? It's not the king of Egypt. I have never in all my years before met a woman named Shifra or a girl named Pua. When we looked at names for our kids and thought about biblical names, we, these, these never even entered the list. They weren't even like at the bottom. And after spending time in Exodus chapter 1, I'm kind of beginning to wonder why. The name Shifra means fair or beautiful. The name Pua, depending upon the etymology that you track, either means fragrant blossom or it means splendid. Pretty good name either way. So what do we have here? Splendid and beautiful stand up to the seat of the devil and tell him who's really in charge. And God blesses them for it. In fact, he preserves their names for all eternity. And so we stand here naming them today. I, I wonder how beautiful and splendid are doing today. I wonder if beautiful and splendid ever thought about wanting to do more for Yahweh in their lives at some point early on. I wonder if they ever imagined that he would give them the names that he has given them, that their names for all eternity would be held up, splendid and beautiful. Look at what splendid and beautiful thing that they have done. Let the boys live. Kill me if you must. I wonder to whom Yahweh would give such names today. Unlikely people serving maybe in little places in the eyes of the world whom he might say splendid and beautiful. Yahweh is making his name known for his glory and ultimately for the good of all of the nations. That is his purpose in the book of Exodus. If you don't know him this morning, his creation is meant to make his name known to you. His works are meant to make his name known to you. Supremely, the gift and the work of his son made known to you so that you can know him, to reveal his character, so that you can see your need and you can believe. Israel, within the book of Exodus, will eventually say, Yahweh, we see, and Yahweh, we believe. That's part of his goal for all of us. And just as Pharaoh could have ended this at any point, go then, find, go. But he didn't. Well, he actually did, but then he reneged on it. But that's another story for another sermon for another time. Just as he could have ended it at any point, so Yahweh could have ended it at any time too. But he didn't. Do you think it was hard for Yahweh to get his people out of Egypt? Like, let's try this. Like, I... I don't know, Gabriel, I have like a, I have a, okay, I'm thinking of something good. What about frogs? 
I totally think this could work. And he tries like, eh, it didn't quite work. Right? No. Piece of cake. God is using Pharaoh for his purposes. And Pharaoh's just going along because he just doesn't know any better. In his arrogance, in his foolishness, and, and in his murderous pride, he refuses to just say, go. And God says, fine, so be it. We'll do this your way. But I will make a name for myself, for my people, for all the nations, and for all the world, for all eternity, that they will know that there is a God in Israel. Yahweh wanted to show his glory to the nations. And where is the book of Exodus going to end? He's going to take slaves to Pharaoh and make slaves to Yahweh. He's going to take servants and make servants. He's going to take worshipers. They don't really worship Pharaoh in that sense, but they do serve him. And he's going to make joyful, gloriously happy worshipers as he dwells in their presence by the end of the book. Question, is that you today? Is that me today? Because that's the goal of God through the ages, and that's the message of the book of Exodus. Yahweh will give the unlikely a name. And in the ages to come, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that through them he will show forth the display of the praise of his glory. That's a name worth making. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Great God, our Father, we thank you that you have made a name for yourself we thank you that we name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who is glorious and beautiful and attractive to us. Thank you, Lord, for the Shifras and the Puas whose names are splendid and beautiful because they fear God. Let us be such a people. Let us have such a name by being people of such character. And today, Lord, let us not make names for ourselves, but let us speak easily and often, happily and and comfortably of our God who makes a name in all that he does. That is our hope. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we praise you for your word. More than anything, we worship you for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.